In mid-November of 2019, I interviewed three young people in the San Diego area to learn about their day-to-day lives and to hear how they thought climate change would alter their communities in the future. Unbeknownst to the four of us, SARS-CoV-2 was probably already circulating in China when we spoke. Two months later, in January, China would lock down the city of Wuhan. By mid-March, San Diego schools were closed to in-person classes, and all of us had entered this new world that we're in now. But then, when we spoke, none of us had any idea what was about to happen. When I listen to these interviews you're about to hear about climate change, I wonder if we would have done anything differently if we had known 25 or 50 years in advance that the COVID pandemic was coming down the road. Of course we knew an outbreak of some kind was possible, but what if we had known what all the symptoms would be, how it would be transmitted, and how it would affect individuals and communities? Would we, as a world, have radically expanded disease detection systems to stop the virus before it expanded? Or, knowing that might fail, would we in California have changed our building codes to maximize airflow in inside spaces? Would we have worked harder at making sure homes and public spaces all had robust Wi-Fi? I think about how much better things could have been, especially for students. But, as you know, that's not what happened. Now, we're experiencing climate change. And we have good forecasts about what we can expect over the next 20, 50, 80 years. What we experience in those future decades is going to be determined by the decisions we make in the next handful of years. In this episode, you'll learn about San Diego County's predicted climate future, which includes sea level rise, but also a whole lot more. You're listening to Future Imperfect. I'm your host, Shane Carter. Hi, my name is Amber. I live in San Diego, and I'm 16 years old. I asked Amber to describe San Diego. So San Diego, I think I've always taken it for granted, but it's actually a place with exceptionally good weather. Um, It's very moderate because it's right next to the beach, so the ocean really is able to absorb the heat and really balance out our weather and moderate it. Um, And I think that my hometown is a place where It's rapidly growing. Actually, a few years ago, every year it's rapidly, rapidly growing. It's becoming more significant as a city. It's a tourist spot for known for Balboa Park, SeaWorld, but um, it's also becoming a biotech concentrated place. So it's very both a touristy spot and a place for development and living. Of course, in the context of this continent, San Diego is an extremely young city. We have archaeological evidence showing that native peoples were already settled in this region 10,000 years ago, which is about the same time agriculture was just beginning in ancient Mesopotamia. And remains farther north, on the Channel Islands, show that people were in coastal California earlier than that, at least 13,000 years ago. That was during the last glaciation period, when sea levels were much lower, so it's possible that there's also additional evidence of those earlier inhabitants buried under the sea, off the current coast. So, 
10,000 years of cultural development, land stewardship, regional migration, all the things human societies do. And then, by 1769, when the Spanish Empire sent soldiers and Franciscan missionaries to establish a mission at San Diego, there were five different peoples living in what is now San Diego County. The Cumie, Luceño, Cahuilla, Cupeño, and Northern Digueño peoples. Today, their descendants have 18 reservations in San Diego County. Collectively, they only hold 193 square miles out of the 4,205 miles that make up the modern county. The story of how Spanish, then Mexican, and then U.S. settlers acquired so much native land is complex and extremely violent. It's a story of conquest, and the legal fights about land rights and resources continue to this day. In California's fourth climate change assessment, San Diego County is its own region. In the south, it borders Mexico. Its western edge is 70 miles of Pacific coast lined with beaches and cliffs. To the east is mountainous desert. And in the north is the megalopolis of the LA basin. This part of the state is home to about 3.4 million people projected to grow to 4 million by 2050. And most of them live in the western part of the county. 60% of the county is public land or otherwise conserved and undeveloped. And that is mostly in the east. So San Diego is actually like a desert area. So there's a lot of brush and a lot of canyons. So, you know, anywhere you look, actually, like driving alongside the freeway, there's actually still a lot of land that's not been urbanized. And those are all canyons covered by brush. It's hot and dry, but it's also moderated by the ocean. So it's kind of, we have cool winds as well. And it's usually, there's a lot of dry vegetation around. As you move south along the San Diego Bay, there are a series of small cities. I'm Leilani Sanga. I'm 15, I mean 14, <laughs> and I'm a sophomore. And can you tell me where you live? I live uh, in Benita. And how far are you from the ocean? Ocean? Um, I think it's about a 15-minute drive from where we are at the moment to there. When I was a kid growing up on the East Coast, I basically thought everyone in California had palm trees in their yard and spent every day at the beach. I asked Leilani what she thought outsiders might get wrong about the San Diego area. Um, One thing that might be kind of surprising is the amount of people who actually haven't gone to the beach in California. (laughs) You would think that, like, being close to such a unique area, it would want you to go there. But I guess some people in California haven't gone to the beach, which might be an interesting fact. Uh, Another interesting part of California is how green people may envision it to be when it's actually quite dry because i don't know if everyone knows this but california is i'm pretty sure originally a desert type area with mountains and most of the lakes here like a large chunk of the lakes here that are like man-made really aren't supposed to be here and a lot of the green stuff that you may see outside like the grass i don't i'm pretty sure isn't native so My third guide for this region lived just south of Leilani in a town that borders the San Diego Bay. I'm Diego, I'm 14 years old, and I live in Chula Vista. How close is Chula Vista to the ocean? To the ocean? Maybe about 20 to 30 minutes by car. I don't go to the beach very often. I also am not really much of a beachgoer, so I identified with Diego. I was asking more because I was thinking about the role of the ocean in San Diego's climate future. How do you think climate change is going to show up here? 
in this particular area? Like, how do you think San Diego will change based on that? Well, first of all, it's going to get a lot hotter and the ocean is going to rise up, right? And a lot of uh, people that live by the shore will have to move, right? Especially in Imperial Beach, there's a lot of uh, controversy over uh, people living in Imperial Beach and climate change. So that's the first thing that comes up to my mind. Sea level rise is such a big issue for San Diego. We need to explore it in some detail. My collaborator on this project was Nancy Freitas, a graduate student studying climate change at UC Berkeley. She listened to my interviews with young people, and then we discussed them. She helped explain the predictions and the climate assessment and answered questions from me and from the students. If you want to hear more background information, including the question from Diego, you should listen to the episode called What is Climate Change? I had some questions for her about sea level rise. One of the things that he brought up as something he knew would be a likely effect of climate change in his lifetime was sea level rise. Mm -hmm. And um, I think this is a thing that a lot of people know about and associate with climate change. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's something that we tend to think about um, almost like rising water in a bathtub or filling up a cup. It seems very straightforward. Either it's gonna rise one foot or it's gonna rise two feet. And I'm wondering, Is that true, or if not, what kinds of things complicate that understanding? Yeah, that's a great question. So we we think of sea level rise as kind of the static number um, that will change by X amount over, I don't know, 10 years. Um, But to preface this, I am not a sea level rise expert. Um, I'm not an oceanographer, but um, I think that there are some really interesting things that we can learn from reading some of the studies that back up these climate assessment reports um, in California. And so I looked into a report um, by Serafin et al., um, and it was published in 2017. And I'd like to explain a little bit about um, the methods that this paper that I was looking into used to um, look at what's called extreme total water level for the coast of California, and then Washington and Oregon. Okay, so this total water level is composed of a still water level um, that is measured using tide gauges. And uh, those tides have been looked at for decades. Um, and we have uh, you know, data, I think it's every hour um, for these tide gauges for the last 40 or 50 years. Um, and then the other component of the total water level is this wave run-up. Let's pause here to make sure you understand. Picture yourself on the beach, maybe facing the water. You're standing on the sand far enough up that you think you won't get wet. But then suddenly a wave comes in and rushes up toward you and pours over your feet. What you just experienced was a wave run-up that was higher than you expected. There are a lot of factors that go into wave run-up. Wave run-up includes things like wave height, how long you know, these waves are at that height and the direction of the waves. And that's computed using models. And so the still water level and this wave run up are combined um, to look at the total water level both in a year and in a large sea level event that might happen in a hundred year period. And basically what they found was that this total water level will change depending on the location that 
um, that you're looking at. And so the total water level in Washington and Oregon is higher than that of um, Southern California. But the, the thing that will impact Southern California most is actually storm surges that are associated with increasing this still water level. Whereas like in Northern California and Oregon and um, Washington, it's the wave run up um, that will ultimately impact those areas more. So a storm surge is different from wave run up? Yeah, so a storm surge is a meteorological contribution to sea level. And so yes, that would be something that could occur in like a, a large storm event. Pause again. A large storm event would come with a lot of wind, and that wind pushes water ahead of it. Like with wave runup, the exact height and direction of the storm surge depends on the direction of the wind, the angle to the shore, the steepness of the land under the ocean, etc. And I would say that the, the storm surge increases water level and can can maintain that increased water level for well, you know, during the period of that storm um, and potentially afterwards too. Um, and it is one component of that still water level. Got it. So this is really useful for thinking about, um, I think just thinking about sea level rise and the way the ocean interacts with our coastlines as a whole, which is that when we hear a simple number about sea level rise, we're thinking of it to go back to my bathtub analogy, as still water in a bathtub. But what you're saying is that really we need to think about not just the level of the water in the bathtub increasing, but also a whole series of different things, creating waves, pushing it from one place to another, et cetera, and that that is actually constantly going on. So just like with the average temperature related to climate, when we talk about sea level rise, at any given moment, anywhere on the planet, the interaction between the ocean and the coast is going to be affected by all these other things in terms of people's day-to-day experience. I mean, I think that those numbers are important when we're thinking about like citywide planning, especially because sea level rise of like one to two feet can greatly impact wastewater treatment and our sewage systems and a lot of piping um, and groundwater. But what this report highlighted for me is that there are all of these different factors that have an impact on extremely high sea levels in you know certain years or over the course of you know 100 years so like an extreme sea level event in an 100 year period of time might result in however many feet of sea level rise maybe that's not what we see on a, a day to day or a year to year but this is kind of an extra impact that our infrastructure might have to withstand. So what are the numbers for sea level rise in San Diego? The state climate assessment predicts about one foot of sea level rise by 2050, and at least three feet by 2100. The farther out we get into the future, the less certain that number is, partly because scientists can't predict exactly how the huge ice sheets at the poles will respond to our warming Earth. If their melting is on the higher end, there is some possibility of a rise of 10 feet by 2100. And keep in mind, that's the still water level. So let's consider what this means in everyday life. By 2050, that one foot of rise means intermittent coastal flooding. 
A foot of sea level rise, plus a storm surge, plus maybe an unusually high tide layered on top of each other, would knock out electrical substations around San Diego Bay for a few weeks. It would erode beaches, it would wash up over railroad tracks. High water at the coast could also submerge storm drains, backing up water and causing flooding farther from the ocean. The same heavy storm might cause overflows at sewage treatment plants, meaning beaches would be closed for a few days or a few weeks. Not good for tourism. This sort of thing won't happen just once. And when it happens repeatedly, these coastal flooding events can do permanent damage to infrastructure, like corroding electrical lines and destroying railroad tracks. By later in the century, the picture is both harder to predict exactly and also more worrying. Additional areas, including Coronado and Camp Pendleton, would see regular flooding. The assessment says, quote, One study estimates approximately $400 million of commercial and industrial property could be lost annually in San Diego County with 6.5 feet of sea level rise. That would be a lot of resources just spent trying to repair and rebuild property, especially because it's hard to imagine insurance companies covering structures in an area like that. Six feet is higher than the most probable scenario, but depending on the ice melt at the poles, it's not a wild prediction. Obviously, the most important thing here is climate change mitigation. We need to keep the rise in average global temperature as small as possible, which will keep sea level rise less extreme. This is both the least expensive and the fairest thing we can do. Locally, cities in San Diego County are already looking at adaptation options. They're trying natural solutions like building sand dunes and oyster reefs to protect coasts. There is also beach nourishment, which means adding sand to beaches. There are so-called hard solutions like beach armoring. In fact, about one-third of the San Diego coastline is already armored with various kinds of walls. And finally, some communities are having the difficult conversations about managed retreat which means deciding to move infrastructure and buildings away from the coast. I asked Amber what kinds of changes she expects to see in her own future. She did talk about changes at the coast, but interestingly to me, her focus was more on plastics pollution rather than sea level rise. If that's the mindset people carry on, and if things continue at the pace there are now, I think by 30 or 40 years, I'll come back to the beaches and I'll just... I just, I won't even be able to see the beach and remember what I did there before because the beach probably won't even look like what I remembered and it won't be a place where I connect with my memory. So I think that potentially if trash is continuously used and then like we don't prioritize reusability or recyclability um, and we continue this pace that I feel like in the future I won't be able to recognize my hometown places as pieces in my memory and I'm afraid of that. The young people I spoke with often shifted seamlessly between different kinds of pollution in our conversations about climate change. It is important to know that greenhouse gas emissions are causing global warming which is leading to climate change. But if you love a particular beach, and it's being destroyed by piles of garbage and sea level rise, you experience both those things together. And the two things are related. The production and disposal of billions of plastic bags each year produces huge amounts of CO2 emissions, even before the plastics end up polluting oceans and beaches. 
Starting from this sort of personal perspective is a good way to think about how climate change may feel day to day in the future. So I asked Amber, Diego, and Leilani to tell me about natural events they had already experienced. Here's Diego. I guess the main thing is just, it's just been getting hotter every summer. Summers have been getting, well, summer, I wouldn't say summers are getting longer, but the sort of warm period that you would associate with summer is getting longer. Like, it didn't start getting cold until November this month, and it was still hot, what, you'd, what we'd expect uh, from summer heat in October. And then it wasn't until, like, late October until we started getting that autumn feel. This is not an illusion. The seven years from 2014 to 2020 were the hottest seven years on record, and the climate assessment predicts average temperatures to increase by 5 to 10 degrees Fahrenheit by 2100 in this region. The average hottest day of the year will likely be 100 to 110 degrees at the coast and 110 to 125 inland, with less cooling at night than we usually have now. And keep in mind, this is the average hottest day. The actual hottest day in any particular year could be a little bit lower, or it could be much higher. Scientists are also predicting more extra hot days in this region, 20 to 50 percent more, even under the best case scenarios. A healthy body can acclimate to heat over a period of several days. And in fact, the CDC even has guidance for how workers can build up their tolerance for working in hot conditions over a period of a few days. But sudden jumps in heat can be deadly. Vulnerable people will be especially hard hit by heat waves, as Amber saw for herself. So I started interning this year at a government office in San Diego. And because it's in downtown San Diego, I live in like suburban San Diego where it's um, it's we're relatively we're, we're we have air conditioner we have shelter but in downtown San Diego all along the streets are homeless people and I commute there like every once or twice every week and I see homeless people and I remember in September actually just this year just this past September it was really 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 hot and I couldn't like I couldn't I couldn't walk past five minutes without like sweating a ton and I don't usually sweat so I remember just seeing like the homeless people out on the streets and the pavements were hot but they were lying on the pavements I was thinking like I can't uh, in my mind I was like oh my gosh I can't wait to get to the office and an air-conditioned room but they they don't have air conditioning they don't have shelter they're out there for the entire day they've probably been out there for like five hours already and I've only been out there for five minutes I was I was I felt terribly bad for them for having to deal with like sleeping on hot pavements and having to find any shade they can, and having to be out there for hours and hours on end until the heat wave eventually like went past. One of the really awful facets of climate change is that certain groups of people are simply more vulnerable to its effects than others. You would expect, for example, that people with cardiovascular disease would be at greater risk during heat waves because heat can stress your heart. But it actually gets more complicated than that. Coastal flooding that knocks out electricity will endanger people who, for example, need access to medical treatments. Heat waves are worse for people who can't afford air conditioning or who live in neighborhoods without any shade. The same is true for people who do manual labor and just can't afford to miss work even on really hot days. In a fire evacuation, non-English speakers may miss crucial information. Your economic status, your language, your very body, these kinds of things will affect how you personally experience climate change. 
Some cities take this into account in their planning for climate change by prioritizing adaptation projects that serve these frontline communities, places where lots of vulnerable people live. If you want to see where those communities are in your own city, you can actually check out the Cal Enviro screen. I've included a link on the Future Imperfect webpage. So in addition to sea level rise and heat waves, San Diego also needs to prepare for changes in precipitation. So first part of this is scientists are predicting fewer, bigger storms. And Leilani experienced a taste of what that might mean when her school theater was flooded. For some reason, there had been in the summer this huge like spike of like rains for some reason. Like we don't usually get rain that often, but for some reason that rain came and it like came pouring down. It was harsh and it wasn't something that people had expected to happen during that time. And uh, the building that we used is honestly kind of old, so it's probably because of that too. But it was just a mixture of both just the tons of rain and then the poor infrastructure that we had. And thinking about that kind of made me think about uh, cities that might be not as developed and how if that were to ha- this were to happen to them, then they might have to deal with something that's a lot more extreme. I mean, we just had to worry about our dresses and our wardrobes and a couple of other major things getting wet. But to some people, that building could have been their house and it could have been somewhere that they needed as like protection from weather like that. And if it's ruined, then they don't have that anymore. The southern part of California already has the highest level of precipitation variability in the country. Annual precipitation can range from 5 inches one year to 35 inches the next, and climate change will intensify that. According to the state climate assessment, people in San Diego can probably expect wetter winters, but drier springs and autumns, and more drought years. Most of the young people I interviewed recalled the drought period that peaked in about 2014-2015. Agricultural areas were particularly hard hit, But urban kids like Amber do remember conserving water. Yeah, I remember the drought. I think um, it was like where my parents couldn't turn on the sprinkler. I think that was the most indicative sign of a drought. And then I remember just like my mom telling us to, because we we wash rice grains with uh, water and then we pour it out and we wash, rinse the rice until the water's slightly, like mostly translucent and then we cook it. And I remember my mom, like I was helping my mom wash rice. She was like, don't pour that that water. Like we got to use that to water our plants. 65% of water in San Diego County goes to household use and the county imports the majority of it, mostly from the Colorado River, but also from parts of Northern California. Both of these sources are expected to decrease a lot by 2050. Most people in the area get their water from the San Diego County Water Authority, but not everyone. For example, most of the Native American tribal governments in the county obtain their water separately, and they have more limited options. Climate change will likely make some of these sources less reliable, too. And this is an example of how historical injustices like lost land and water rights are combining with modern climate change to disproportionately impact specific communities of people. A little over 20% of the water provided by the San Diego Water Authority to its customers comes from local sources, and these include groundwater, local streams, recycled water, and also a desalination plant. Leilani's drought memory involves one of those local sources. I do remember that. We had this um, amazing lake called Lake Hodges nearby the old area I used to live in. And I remember looking at it with my mom and just noticing the water levels drop because you could see the lines carved in from the mountains. I mean, this was like a man-made lake, but still you could just see the 
water levels slowly go down and then the the there's this one area the lake that was kind of shallow and it just dried up completely and there was nothing there and it, it was just horrible to look at um did you normally swim there or was it just like a place to visit it was mainly a place to visit i had a lot of childhood memories there because i don't know my mom named our dog after the lake there and i mean it was cute um but i mean we did go boating there a couple of times which is really fun but and yeah it was just more of a hiking experience and we got to hike around the lake so it was definitely almost always in view but just watching something like that kind of like slowly like physically disappear from my sight was kind of scary yeah um do you remember having to change any of your behaviors in the drought or were you too young to have to remember what that might have been there was only one major one my mom had a really beautiful garden which had grass and because gardening was something that she loved to do in her free time and she I don't know there was a new law that came out that said you could only or it wasn't suggested that you water your plants too much or your grass and they didn't really want to see people do that anymore and then I also had fun washing my mom's car there was like a law that passed that you couldn't really wash your car in the driveway anymore to prevent water so I remember those two things happening pretty small but I when I was younger I used to like sit in the garden with tons of tall grass and then like now I go back and I look at it even though I don't live there anymore I kind of like whenever I'm near that area I kind of go check up on the house and it's just full of dirt and it's it's not because we didn't take care of it anymore it's just because like we stopped watering it and there wasn't really rain to take care of it anymore and because of that it's just completely run down looking and it was really sad it's a sad change as we move toward 2100 the amount of water in the colorado river is expected to decrease substantially Changing precipitation patterns mean there will probably be less water available from Northern California sources as well. So San Diego will need to get much more of its water from local sources, which means all the things it's already doing, plus stormwater capture and even more water conservation. So, so far, we've addressed four immediate aspects of climate change in this area. Sea level rise, heat, and the changing precipitation patterns that will cause both bigger storms and more drought. You've also heard a little about how each of these will play out in people's lives. The last change has to do with fire. Leilani has an unusually positive memory of being evacuated from the path of a fire. My mom had taken us to the beach where we stayed at a beach house, like a condo. So, of course, to me, that was really fun. But realizing that I wasn't anywhere, like, extremely close to the fire, yet could just, like, sense it with, like, every other um, sense except for, like, um, seeing. uh, That was just kind of scary. The more I realized, like, how um, impactful that fire was to my home area so when the fire happened it got to be close enough that your mom basically like i'm guessing school closed and your mom took you guys away so that you wouldn't be close to it yeah it was a huge ordeal she took um 
Yeah, she took all most of our stuff and we took packed it into a suitcase. And I thought this was going to be a fun vacation because, I mean, it really was. But she had us go all the way down to Oceanside where we stayed there near the beach because, you know, the beaches and fires don't really work together. But yeah, we stayed there for three days because the fire had lasted for quite a long time. And that was where we were protected. In my interviews, I heard several stories like this where young people recalled ways their parents tried to make them feel safe in moments of crisis. And I feel like this is one of the aspects of climate change that deserves a little bit more reflection. Amber's early memory is as much about her parents as it is about the fire itself. I actually, the most clear memory I have of being affected by fires was when I was four. I was living at Poway at the time, and I remember that my parents, before I went to bed, my parents told me that um, uh, we might have to evacuate because the fires were coming towards us. And I didn't really, I was like, oh, okay, like fires, whatever. I didn't really think about it as a four-year-old. But later on, um, in the middle of the night, suddenly my mom like flicked on my lights and she was like, yo, we need to like go. And then she like tossed a sweater over my head. And then as I was leaving, my parents didn't even have time to turn off the TV. And I saw like just pictures of flames and it, it felt like the flames were blowing towards my home and I remember at four years old that's like one of the most concrete memories I had of like the picture the snapshot in my memory like of the fire on the tv screen and my mom shoving a sweater over my head and police outside telling us to evacuate so for me like fires really hit me as a crucial issue and as like a something that really impacts me and then of course later on in the years I haven't been told to evacuate necessarily because I moved later on to a I moved towards Del Mar where like fire hazards aren't usually as intense as Poway Um, so nowadays I don't have to evacuate but I still see a lot of news about California fires and it channels the memory of my four-year-old self yeah I'm sure. How long were you guys evacuated? Do you remember? Um, we were evacuated for one to two days, so it wasn't that bad, and it was a huge relief. I remember like sitting on the minivan and like coming home, and then seeing my house still there, and I was like, oh, as a four-year-old, like I was worrying that much. So for me, it was like I feel very, very lucky that my home hasn't been directly destroyed by fire, but I know for so many others, it's not the same. That's why climate change is really important to address. Yeah, and I am curious, do you remember what it was like being in the evacuation center? Um, I wasn't in the evacuation center, actually. Um, My mom luckily had a friend who was in a safer place, but I remember... My parents were really, really hectic. And because my parents were really hectic, I always looked up to my parents, right? My parents are superheroes. They can take care of me. They can cook. They can drive me places. They know everything. I can ask them anything and they'll respond. And they were so hectic. And it was their first time evacuating for a fire. They really didn't know what to do. So I remember feeling like, wow, even my parents are this scared. Like, how scared should I feel? So for me, as a four-year-old, even though I didn't know about climate change, I felt that Whatever happening was bad. Um, I think you hit on a number of different topics that people are talking about with fire, not just the health dangers, but also the anxiety. Um, Has your school been closed because of smoke in the intervening years? Have you ever been in the the path of smoke? There was a moment, there was a time in fifth grade where, um, because my school is located right smack dab in the middle of a canyon. Whenever I'd bike there to school, like I said before, in elementary school, I biked to school. Um... Whenever I'd bike there, there's a canyon right next to us. And apparently there was like 
a fire going on right there and the smoke and the conditions were not safe for children to go. So I remember that it was the first fire day of my life um, and I was really worried that potentially my bike trail and my school would get ruined. What about like my classroom? What about like my projects on the wall? You know, I was thinking about stuff like that. The hot, dry Santa Ana winds, which blow from the east toward the coast, already account for more than 70% of hot days in October. If you live in the San Diego region, you probably also associate them with fire danger. Modeling how climate change will affect wind is extremely complicated, but the current prediction suggests that the total number of Santa Ana days may not change. And in fact, the wind may even be less strong. But more of the windy days will probably be hotter and drier. And this is not necessarily good news for fire. More heat, plus a drier spring and autumn, plus drier Santa Ana winds, means fire danger is likely to increase. So how can we think about this? By burned area, like the number of square miles burned, the number two cause of wildfires is downed power lines. And studies suggest the increased frequency of recent fires has to do with growing human activity in what's called the wildland-urban interface, the place where new development is pushing out into undeveloped land. We can't stop the Santa Ana winds from blowing, obviously, but power companies can invest in better infrastructure. They already are, in some places. Cities can also make decisions about where and how to grow so that we minimize the kinds of human nature encounters that cause these accidental fires. Leilani, who wants to be an architect when she grows up, is actually interested in this very idea. If you look at like the 1900s to here, there's like this huge jump in, in like the population, like, uh, the population growth and obviously we're running out of resources and the best way to do that I think or at least conserving land would be to just have more apartments more like um, uh, larger buildings that can fit like more than one family I think that's going to be a really important role and I'd like to see that come in play and I mean we kind of have that already with apartments and stuff like that but I'd like to see like more space conserved. And obviously I don't want things to be compacted and I don't want things to look ugly, kind of like, I don't know, the industrial revolution. But I, I think it's possible to still have, you know, skyscrapers and large buildings while still making everything just, I don't know, mentally okay by having enough space for everyone. Denser development is a way of not pushing into the wildland urban interface. And I wondered how Leilani had learned about these concepts. Um, that's the second time you've mentioned this trip to China. Can you tell me about that? I'd love to. Uh, I got um, I got a scholarship to spend like a month in Beijing, China, where I got to learn about sustainability, which I know it's a really important aspect in my life. Um, I like spent time in a hotel there, time at a hostel, time just traveling and then learning inside a college classroom as well. Did you have interesting conversations with the students that you were there with about kind of what you were learning and your changing ideas? Oh, yeah, we had tons of debates. Actually, a lot of them were mainly about the politics in America. I'm not entirely sure if that was the most like appropriate to have there, but uh, we discussed a lot about um, how to what's the best way to conserve our resources and what's the best way to reuse like energy or create energy and while I don't remember it off the top of my head 
I just remember there being like really important and amazing conversations with full of ideas I've never thought of before. So did you meet people who had sort of like different politics than you on the surface, but you were able to talk to them about sustainability or environmentalism, even though you didn't have the same overt politics? Oh, yeah, there was. There was this guy there who was um, an advocate for Trump, and I found that really interesting because, I mean, when I think of a a sustainable supporter, I don't usually think of them usually being a follower, like a supporter of Trump, but this guy in particular was, and he was actually was really like really and had these amazing ideas. And while I didn't really believe in all of his um, political views, I certainly did believe and like have faith in his uh, like sustainable uh, views. <laughs> the experience changed how Leilani thinks we humans should interact with our world. My perspective of sustainability really changed when they started talking about uh farming and land space because um, I remember reading in my textbook that I believe it's like somewhere in Europe that the farmland or like soil used for farmland is like decreasing by a ton and just hearing about that was like oh no what are we going to do how are we going to produce food and then I went to a hostel and we learned about like sustainable farming and I learned how like kind of how farming was basically a system if done correctly and how it would be so much easier to just take care of our resources and how and like everything that we have if we just put enough time and effort into it rather than just thinking about money all the time. Amber, Leilani and Diego talked about both the futures they fear and the futures they hope for. Leilani's experience learning about sustainability in China is a good reminder that San Diego's future won't happen in isolation. Global climate changes will lead to local weather events, and the effects of those local weather events will ripple outward to affect people in neighboring countries and across the world. The intensity of the ripples will depend on how much we reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and how well we work together to adapt. When he thinks about climate change, Diego focuses on this interconnection. And then I guess this is more just a global thing. You know, there's gonna be a lot more unstable weather weather patterns and there's going to be less food so that's what I think will happen. Can you talk to me about why you think there will be less food? Well with the changing climate you know the food you know isn't wasn't made to uh, sort of grow in a hotter climate. Is this something that you worry about? Like how would you describe your emotion about climate change and about your expectations I feel like like you mean like if we don't do anything then I feel like there just isn't much of a future left like if we just keep going on well I don't know exactly how much but we won't have a lot of time like I don't think we could make it to uh, 2100 if we just keep doing what we're doing and then when you say, um, like, you don't think we'd make it to 2100, I'm kind of curious what you imagine. I don't really think about it in detail, but I think right now, I'd say there a lot of people would be starving, right? And a lot of places would be uninhabitable from a hotter climate.
Diego had just come from an event at his local library where teens were giving public presentations about climate change. He said it was a really good day, partly because he got to work with his friends on something that's important to him. You also heard how excited Leilani was to learn about sustainability and discuss possible futures with her fellow students when she went to Beijing. I wondered about the flip side, how much time she spends worrying about climate change. It doesn't really occupy too much of it. I tend to organize my thoughts, and I'm usually too busy enough to start worrying about it too much. But when I really get into it, it kind of does spark a little bit of anxiety, thinking about how like there are adults out there who are denying it. And I've even run into this interesting perspective of, oh, climate change was meant to happen because we've had all these systems where the earth is kind of just shut down, like the ice age and whatnot, and it's going to happen here. And that's going to be completely fine with me, and I have nothing against it, so I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. And... I don't know, it just causes a little bit of panic because I'm pretty sure it is preventable if we look at enough like um, human effects and how it like uh, changes the earth, then it's definitely preventable. And like, look, I don't care that you're in your 50s and you're probably gonna die before everything major is gonna happen. This is kind of my life and I would like to live a pleasant enough life without thinking, dang, I wish I was 20 right now because I could actually experience everything that the adults got to go through before climate change hits. <laughs> At the beginning of the episode, I mentioned how the COVID pandemic caused me to reflect differently on these conversations about climate change. And I have to say, one of the particular things I noticed was how much we as a society were willing to turn our entire lives upside down to save older people, my age and older, from something that was particularly dangerous to us. And I think about that in the context of climate change and something that is particularly dangerous to younger people. All this information about climate change is really just a long answer to the question, why do we need to change our behavior? It tells us what to avoid, but it doesn't tell us what to aim for. And I asked Amber to tell me about the future she hopes to see. Regardless of wherever I picture, I always picture the the ability to bike everywhere, the ability to breathe fresh air, and the ability to um, see clean um, nature reviews because I've traveled to a lot of places in Asia and I see the smog and I see the climate pollution. I see how hot it is. I see people having to wear face masks um, or not being able to go out without air conditioner. So I really think that because I've been blessed in my hometown and I feel like I've taken these things for granted, whatever I picture myself, like wherever I picture myself in the future, it involves a place where Nature can be a place where I relax and I feel like I can walk out the door and I can breathe easily. I can walk out the door and I can bike everywhere I want to. So I think that wherever my future carries me, I hope that it's a place where I can be in touch with nature. Do you think if we were having this conversation 50 years ago that you would have answered that the same way? I think nowadays youth were really understanding that nature is something that is not static it's definitely something that's bound to change based on our actions. We'll end with that. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about how climate change will affect the San Diego region, check out the Future Imperfect page at calglobaled.org. You'll find a link to the state climate assessment, plus lots of articles about the topics mentioned in this episode. There are also links to interactive maps to help you explore the likely effects of sea level rise all along the California coast. Thanks to Nancy Freitas for her extensive guidance interpreting the science, and to Richard Duke, who composed and recorded the music. 
And if you visit the webpage, be sure to take a moment to look at the cover art by Sierra Claxton. Future Imperfect is a production of the California Global Education Project, without whose generous support this would not have been possible.